So not much more than a week to Christmas Day. And I know it's going to be a bit of a strange one, especially as we've always been together on Christmas Day. But you're such a good cook, so I know you'll manage really well to cook a fabulous Christmas dinner. This is Lekka. I'm Lucy Dearlove. This is going to be the first Christmas I've ever spent without my parents. When the decision was made that neither of our households would travel to see each other over Christmas, one of my first thoughts, alongside obviously experiencing this extra layer of sadness and resignation at this awful year, was, oh God, I have to cook Christmas dinner myself. The Christmas dinner I have with my parents usually consists of most or all of the following. Turkey, stuffing, sausage meat and chestnut is a particular favourite. Cranberry sauce, roast potatoes, parsnips, carrots, red cabbage cooked in fruit beer, sprouts with pancetta and chestnuts, gravy, obviously, and one final essential component... And you and I both know that bread sauce is absolutely crucial to a Christmas dinner and other dinners as well if you want to add it. When I think of Christmas at my parents' house, one of the strongest images that comes to mind is a Pyrex jug uh, with a plate over the top, uh, keeping the heat in and the steam in. And inside the jug is warm milk uh, infusing for the bread sauce. I really don't want to dwell on the negative aspects of this year. There have been so many negative aspects of this year. And it really sucks that I can't spend Christmas with my parents. I've seen them once this year. They live 260 miles away from where I live. Like so many people, my ability to be able to see my family has really been curtailed and I hate it. But thinking about making bread sauce for the first time myself and through doing that, feeling connected to the people I love through our respective plates and our respective kitchens has made me think about other people doing similar things for special occasions this year. Talking to my mum about how she gets her bread sauce so good led me to asking Lekka listeners to send me the food traditions they'll be recreating in different circumstances this year. So as well as my family's ode to bread sauce, in this episode you'll also hear contributions from a few other people about the food traditions they're keeping up. And buried in the heartache at not being with loved ones and of knowing that we're not out of the woods yet, I really think there's a tough, resilient core of determination, pragmatism and maybe even joy. So here goes. I'm going to give you a few tips on to how to make it just the same way as I do. There are two types of people. You're either someone who loves bread sauce with a gentle, steady affection, or you're someone who is completely ambivalent about it. The absence of passionate feelings towards it makes sense for what it is. A mild, comforting, creamy accompaniment to meat, normally poultry or game. A milk-based sauce thickened with breadcrumbs. A legacy from medieval food traditions in this country. 
and softly, cautiously spiced with bay, black peppercorns, cloves and blades of mace, which is the slightly glamorous name for the shell that surrounds the nutmeg. For me and my mum, it's an essential inclusion on the Christmas dinner plate, in Christmas pie and in Christmas leftover sandwiches. Yep, bread on bread. Christmas isn't Christmas without at least a pint of this on the table. Obviously you're going to need some milk and I suggest you get full milk because it makes a much better bread sauce. And the first thing you're going to do is get an onion and peel it and stick some cloves in that onion. So maybe about six cloves in the onion and then Pop the onion in the milk in a pan on the hob and heat it gently up to boiling point. You also need to put your mace in in the milk and maybe four peppercorns. Now I am wondering if you've got any mace and I suppose somewhere like Carnes would have some if you can't get it at Sainsbury's but mace does give that lovely bread sauce flavour. So the onion in the hot milk with the mace and peppercorns can come just up to boiling point. Then you're going to take it off the heat and cover it and leave it for ages. Some say leave it for half an hour, but it's not enough. You need a nice long time for it to infuse properly. White bread is the best. I know that other breads are available and I have tried it with other breadcrumbs, but it's not as good. Once it's infused, you need to put the milk, spices and onions through a sieve. But keep the little clove-studded onion to one side. Now you can add the breadcrumbs and stir it all up then put on a gentle heat and add the butter at this point. Just heat it gently and as it warms up, the breadcrumbs swell, making it nice and thick. You want a a nice soft consistency. Taste it as it will need salt and maybe extra pepper. And at this point, when you're just about ready to use it, you can add cream if you want to. As you'll remember, my grandpa, your great-grandfather, had a dairy, so bread sauce always had a lot of cream in it for us. In fact, there would be a lot of cream with everything. When your grandma was young and the family lived at the dairy in central Middlesbrough, the cream would be sold directly into customers' jugs. Grandma was in charge of pouring the cream from her jug into the customers' jugs. And at the end of the day, she would make tea in the jug that had served the cream. I don't go that far, but it is good in your bread sauce. I don't remember when I didn't have bread sauce at Christmas. It was very much a part of the festive dinner. I can remember having it at my grandma's bungalow, which was in the middle of countryside outside Middlesbrough where the whole family would go and stay for Christmas week. Grandma cooked a massive goose and there would be vegetables from the big vegetable garden and, of course, bread sauce. 
Stuffing was also an important addition, but that's another story. When Grandpa died and we had Christmas at the family home, there would still be plenty of bread sauce. For me, its subtle flavours and comforting consistency are an essential part of Christmas Day. And of course, how can you make Christmas pie without the textures of the bread sauce? I'm not going to talk to you about Christmas pie because I know you're a dab hand at making it. So what are your memories of bread sauce? Well, um, they're certainly not as interesting and as historical as yours. <laughs> but um, I, do, I do remember my mum making it and it being on the plate. And it was, it was probably the least interesting item on the plate. I didn't dislike it. Um, generally, I like anything with onions in, but I wasn't wild about it. I, I thought it was perhaps a little boring but I always had to eat it, so I ate it. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's more or less the same now. <laughs> yes, it is. You're not bothered about it, are you? No, but if it's there, I'll eat it. I won't make a fuss about it. Yeah, you, you never have as much as I do. Uh, no, true. <laughs> Preparations for my own bread sauce are now well underway. I've got my white bread turning stale, ready to make the breadcrumbs. My mum was right. I did manage to find Mace in Carnes, which is my favourite shop in the world on Rye Lane in Peckham, and which was still quiet and fully stocked, even after the panic buy-inducing tier four an- announcement. Long live Carnes! I'm not the only one making a dish I eat every year but have never made myself before. Here's Emma on the Venezuelan ham bread that her aunt Ingrid has made a huge part of their Lincolnshire family Christmas. Along with ayacas, stew-stuffed dough cooked in plantain leaves, ham bread, or pan de jamón, is a staple of the holiday season in Venezuela. Please excuse my Spanish. So my name is Emma Barnaby. I am an audio producer and I currently live in South East London, but I'm originally from Lincolnshire, from a pretty small little town in Lincolnshire, um, quite near Grimsby, which is where my grandma's side of the family is from, and also the um, annual location of the dish that I've chosen. Every year we'd always congregate on Boxing Day. It was usually Boxing Day at my grandma's house, where my uncle and my auntie and my cousins would always stay for Christmas and then our side of the family would all go over. Um, my grandma, literally for, for years, she's always done it for years, regardless of like how old she is, she's always put puts on this kind of insane buffet spread with all the leftovers from the day before, like at least like four or five kinds of meat, Definitely like a cracker selection box in there, cheese selection, you know, just like just the classic kind of Christmas, Christmas fair. <laughs> and this would all be like spread out on on my grandma's 
dining room table in this really, really small little kitchen in her house in Grimsby. And there'd just be like cousins, me and my sister, like all parents, auntie, uncle, grandma, and my granddad when he was alive. And, you know, we'd all just be like, especially when we were kids, just be kind of spilling out into various different rooms of the house with plates full of food. Get a bit older, glasses full of wine. Get a bit older than that, glasses full of sherry. It's the one time of year where, well, it's the, the mostly the time of year that was the only time of year that we would see all of our family together. So obviously the crystal ware would come out and everything would be served on. My grandma has this amazing kind of set of crockery, this really kind of 70s set of crockery that's really dark brown. And then around the outside is a kind of, it's either mustard yellow or like an olivey green kind of rim around the outside of the plate with matching like mustard pots, condiment pots, saucers, cups, etc. And then every year, Ingrid would also cook some Venezuelan food. And the one thing that always sticks in my mind is Venezuelan hambread, which she would cook pretty consistently every single year. Hi, I am Ingrid. I'm original from Venezuela, where I was raised and lived until I was 25. Then I came to live in England and met my husband, that is Emma's uh, uncle. And that's how I become part of the Briggs family. Emma has asked me to participate in this lovely podcast about ham bread, that is one of the best things you can eat during the Christmas time. In Venezuela, everybody loves to have the ham bread. I think in the middle of November, that's the time I really think that all the bakers start making it. It's like Christmas starts at that moment. It's like a, a pre-Christmas time. And it's very important for everybody to have their own. And every bakery has their own recipe or twist to it. So is the gossip in town because you will see bakeries that have long, long queues. Uh, it could be a hundred people making the queue just to buy the, the bread. Then you start talking to your friends. Have you tried this one or you trying the bakery in this other place? And if somebody have made them in their house, you said, oh, you need to try that person ham bread because that's the best. It has to be to everybody's taste, I imagine, that that's different. When I arrived in England in the early 90s, it was impossible to make a jacket because you need a plantain leaf and I didn't know how to cure them with gas or any kind of flame. I didn't know any about that. So that's the reason I focus my intention of cooking the Christmas dinner with the ham bread. And at the end, I just master some kind of recipe coming from many other recipes because um, everybody had their own. And that's how I made myself this lovely bread. And I started to introduce this to friends and family. And how is everybody fell in love with it? In Venezuela, when you are making a jacas or the ham bread, the families reunite all together. 
And that includes from the grandparent to the grandkids. Everybody gets involved into it. And it's a big party because you spend at least the whole day. And after that, you're listening to music, you dance, you drink some rum, some whiskey, sometimes beer or ponche crema. That is kind of an eggnog drink, also from Venezuela. And it's very nice. But um, here I have to do it with my husband and we made a little bit of production for the ham bread because kneeling was really hard for me until I decided that there are other methods to make the dough. So I started to use a proper bread mixer. So the job was much, much easier. One of the funny things that you have to do with a dough is that you have to throw it on the top of the kitchen for a hundred times. What does that do? Oh, no idea. But they said it's for air and the bread will be more moisture or will be more soft. I don't know. I have tried it without the hundred throwing and it's still fine. But it's fun. Sometimes it's good to get rid of all the excess tiredness of kneeling. I don't know, but it was funny uh, to find out that you need to do that tip so your bread will be proper, fantastically Venezuelan. Ham bread is made with ham, ham on. pancetta, and olives, olives without like green olives, stone, and preferably if uh, filled with uh, the pepper ones and, and capers and, and raisins. raisins that are being soaked especially if you like in wine I definitely don't do that because I don't like alcohol with my food I don't know why but that's me like I said it's a different taste to everybody and essentially this is Kind of constructed like a Swiss roll, but with a re like this sweet, salty, buttery like dough. The butter in the original recipe is unsalted butter. I use a slightly salted butter. And it's all kind of like rolled out into a big sheet. And then you kind of put these layers, these layers on top and roll it up like a Swiss roll. Um, so it's kind of really long log same kind of like fun exciting bits inside that you get in like Stalin or something but from Venezuela that was a really awful description <laughs> so yeah you it would, ba- it would be baked with kind of an e- this egg glaze on top the bread is covered with a syrup of papillon and that is cane sugar with egg so you vein the, the bread and that make it a little bit more sweet that you can imagine, but not over sweet. So it comes out of this like insane, um, like amber, glossy, um, glossy top on it. And the dough itself is kind of like, it's really, really soft. And it's kind of got like a slight bit of density, like the kind of density of, um, of, of a bagel sometimes it's quite like and the same kind of like enriched sweet um sweetness of that and then just like peppered with like the the most like 
just like the best flavours, just salty and sweet and a bit of brine, briny capers and olives chucked in there. There's one story that my uncle always tells me. My, my auntie, my uncle and my cousins lived abroad quite a lot, so they'd move around quite frequently. And wherever they were moving from, they would also bring all the ingredients for ham bread so that Ingrid could make it at my grandma's house every year. It's probably unfair to say now, but like it, it's, it's not... Capers is probably not something that is like super easily accessible in a corner shop in Grimsby, as is, as is quite a lot of places. But my uncle always tells me about one year, Ingrid forgot the mini capers for the for the recipe and so he had to rush into into the village to go to Tate's which is now the spa shop but spa formerly known as Tate's so we went into the village to get some to get to try and get some capers I couldn't find them anywhere he cut so he kind of asked the cashier do you have any capers and they just kind of sent him packing and told him that it wasn't arid's and Tim, I don't know what else you could expect. The first time I made them in Grimsby, I thought I would not, you know, conquer it because I have to bring all my equipment and everything. But in Grandma's house, she have a space there that communicate the kitchen because it's an open space with the kitchen with the dining. So everybody was having a good time and I was kneeling and I was making them. But, you know, the best memory I have is that when people start arriving and they can smell the bread, everybody was so, oh, my God, what are you making? Smell delicious. And, you know, uh, I thought that was the first wonderful memory that everybody was willing to try something different that I have never tried before. And as I said, they really, really love it until today that, you know, um, this year I won't be able to make them in grandma's house because it's nice when it's just fresh. But I will try to send everybody one by the post because we cannot be together. But in that way, I hope that they will not miss out something important. And Addy is also making a family favourite dish for the first time. Although she's still spending Christmas with her mum, it's not going to be quite the same this year. Hi, I'm Addy. I'm a pastry chef. Um, I live in London and I was born in Portugal. I've lived in London since I was about four when my parents moved there from Portugal. Um, my parents are actually from Guinea-Bissau and then they moved to Portugal and then we moved to London. But um, yeah, so I'm basically a Londoner. The dish that I've chosen is called bacalhau com natas and it's basically like a fish pie. Um, we use a lot of the same kind of ingredients like a fish pie, but we just use the one fish. This one is all centered around the salted cod which the Portuguese love. We use it in so many different dishes, but this is definitely one of the best ways to cook it. You could eat it at any time of the year, 
but we do have it at Christmas. It's perfect for Christmas because it's so warming, it's so hearty, really filling. On top of all the other things that we eat for Christmas, like a roast, potatoes, vegetables. The Portuguese love salads. Uh, the salads that we make in Portugal is very simple, you know, iceberg, onions, tomatoes, cucumbers, salt, white wine vinegar, and, you know, of course, olive oil. And that pretty much goes with every single meal. <laughs> I would actually eat this fish pie with a salad, which is, you know, it's it's normal for me to do that. But I wouldn't think about doing it with a British fish pie because it just wouldn't make sense. And I feel like the flavors just wouldn't mix. But with this one, I think because of the saltiness of the fish, it just works with a salad on the side and it's, it's beautiful. So even at Christmas, we would have a salad as well, have the pie, have our roast chicken, all the other bits and bobs that we eat and, you know, be stuffed by the end of it. My mum normally cooks this pie. I don't always do it for myself because I'm quite lazy. But <laughs> when I do really want to make it, of course, I make it. And it's, you know, it's so nice. But nothing beats, you know, your parents, your mum's home cooking or, you know, your grandma's home cooking. Nothing beats that. So I'd say that she definitely makes it better than I do. So what you need to do, first of all, is to prep your fish. I usually buy them already unsalted and chopped up just because I'm lazy. But, you know, you can, of course, buy the salted cod and you just need to unsalt the cod by boiling it in water, taking it out, boiling it again, taking it out until, you know, until you've got enough of the salt off. The fish is never going to be completely unsalted, but you know, you'd get as much salt as you need off. Otherwise, you'd be, you know, shaking and everything. <laughs> how I normally start it, or how my mum normally starts it, which is how I know how to make this pie, is by warming um, a pan. You heat some, a pan with some, lots of olive oil, add in some chopped onions and garlic, and then you're just going to sweat it down. You don't want it to brown. You just want it sweated. And the fish that you have, um, you're going to add that into the pan. And as you're cooking it with the onions and the garlic, it's going to break up, but it's fine. That's exactly what you want. And you cook that together. While that's cooking, you can heat up a pan of oil. Or if you have a fryer, then you can heat up your fryer. And you're basically going to boil your potatoes in water actually <laughs> boil the potatoes in water and then you're going to fry them and with the potatoes what you need is skin off you're going to chop them up into little pieces uh, I like to have it a little bit chunky not too small so about like the size of a starburst roughly that size I mean you can you can go for perfection if you want and have like perfect cubes but you know rough and tumble that's how we like it so so fry your potatoes you know it's okay if it does have a little bit of color you know you don't want them too dark so just fry them like you're frying chips basically and once that's fried you can leave that to the side 
Then for the creamy part, which is what natas means, nata means cream. So for the cream part of your pie, we basically make a bechamel. When it's all ready, it's going to be nice and creamy, kind of like a thick double cream consistency, but still pourable. You'll season it with just some pepper, some paprika, maybe some nutmeg. I wouldn't add salt if you feel like you might want to add some salt i would say leave that to the end once all the mixtures once all the ingredients are in together but even when you have unsalted your cod or if you've bought unsalted cod already there is still a bit of salt there so you don't really need to add any more salt once your bechamel is ready you're basically going to add everything all in together so you're going to mix the bechamel in with the fish and the potatoes all together in a pan and pour it into your baking dish and you're pretty much ready to go so my mum usually will add breadcrumbs to the top but you can also add cheese to the pie so you can add any cheese that you want and you just bake it in the oven so you'll bake it in the oven for about half an hour to 40 minutes. I mean, everything's already cooked. You kind of just want to brown the top. If you've got cheese, then obviously you want that to be browned. And that is it. <laughs> so for this year, we will be making it for Christmas again. It's 2020. We're still in the middle of this global pandemic, something that we thought we'd, you know, we'd see the end of after a month or two, you know, back in March. So it is going to be quite different this year eating it because it's just going to be the two of us where normally it's just the three of us, me, my mum, my brother or other extended family. But of course, we can't have too many people in the house or, you know, we can't have anyone who doesn't live with us, really. And my brother is actually, he's a chef as well. And he's actually in Switzerland working there. He's just got a job and moved there. So he's not going to be able to have Christmas with his family. You know, he most likely might be working at Christmas. And it's just going to be me and my mum and we get all the food to ourselves, <laughs> which is good because he's quite greedy. <laughs> the things that will change this year is mainly, you know, for everyone is having their friends and their family around them in in the times that they need them you know whether it's birthdays christmases weddings but what stays the same is the fact that we're still going to be able to eat all the food that we normally do the food that's so special it's like the saving grace of the year that you're still going to be able to get to eat something that you know for some you only you know you only eat it once a year you know like i will go crazy for mince pies in December from the 1st to the 31st I'll just eat a mince pie every day but then I won't eat them again for the rest of the year and even though this this pie this bakalia con natas you can eat it at any time of the year it really is a Christmas a Christmas dish so I really look forward to Christmas knowing that this is what I'm going to have you know as part of my dinner and the other thing about the Portuguese Christmas is that we have our big Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve. We open our presents on Christmas Eve. We have our Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve. So I kind of feel, you know, a bit lucky that I get to have my Christmas dinner before everyone else. 
and I'm really, really looking forward to attempting it for the first time myself. I just can't wait till I taste, till I taste it, and you know, it kind of just makes me feel like everything's going to be all right once I get to eat this pie. <laughs> So because of the time of year that I decided to make this episode, when I asked people to send me stories of recreating food traditions, a lot of them were naturally Christmas related. But I'm really honoured to have the following piece in here too, from Pratusha, about Pongal, a harvest festival celebrated in South India, usually in mid-January. Pongal is also the name of the dish itself made during the festival. Hi there, my name is Pratyusha. I'm an Indo-Swiss writer and I've always really loved thinking about food, talking about food. I've grown up in, or in between rather, a lot of different heritages. For example, my dad's side is from Eastern India, from the state of Bihar. And my mother's side is from Southern India, the state of Tamil Nadu. They've also grown up in different cities and I've grown up in different cities, in different countries. And I've had the good fortune to listen to a lot of people talk about food in very different ways. I've had the good fortune to, you know, listen to people's stories about food, um, recipes, and I've had access to a huge range of cuisines, which has made me really excited to try cooking things myself. So I'm really looking forward to talking about that today. I'm going to talk about bongal, which is a dish made of rice and lentils that is had during the harvest festival of bongal. And um, it, it's tempered with ghee and pepper. Pepper is really, really special in South India. It's used in a lot of different dishes it's it's used really liberally and regularly and in pongal it's really particularly important because it provides this amazing kick of spice when you least expect it so what would normally be like quite a plain dish if you think you know just rice and lentils becomes really exciting because of that um the, the fat of the ghee which makes rice always taste really amazing and the pepper there are different kinds of pongal, so you can have shakrai pongal, which is a sweet version of the same dish, but I prefer the savory version. Pongal is a really special festival in South India because it just marks the coming of spring, it marks harvest, and it's, it's a time for family to get together and celebrate, and I've always really enjoyed it. I've also not grown up with a lot of South Indians. So obviously, yes, my immediate family. But when I was growing up in my childhood, I didn't know any South Indians outside of my family. So I actually don't know how other Tamar uh, Hindu families celebrate Bungal and whether their traditions or their food differs from ours. The process of making it is really very, very, very straightforward. You tend to pressure cook the rice and the lentils together. So you normally do it in, you know, a, a large traditional steel pressure cooker, but I don't have a steel pressure cooker in London, so I've been making it in an instant pot. 
The results are just the same, except you have to be quite careful with your proportions. The first time I did it for Pongal this year, it kind of burned the bottom of the Instant Pot because I'd put too much rice and too much lentils and too much water. And my Instant Pot didn't know how to deal with it, so it just burned the entire thing to my absolute consternation. <laughs> I don't actually know how long Pongal has been around for. I'm sure Wikipedia will tell you, but I'm pretty certain it's an ancient harvest festival that's been around for years and years and years and years. Who normally makes this dish in the house? Well, it depends on who's at home, because my family lives in Switzerland, and most of my extended family, my grandparents and so on, live in India. It depends on who is around during Pongal. In the past, when my grandparents, my Pati and Tata, were over for Pongal, Pati always made Pongal. And she had her own way of making it. Pati is so liberal with her ghee. She always puts too much ghee in food, which, <laughs> I mean, us kids, we love that. My mother, not so thrilled with it. Otherwise, my mother makes it. My mother's proportions are always just right. We have a little curry leaf plant that we sort of secretly imported from India over to Switzerland several years ago and we've been quietly nurturing and growing it in our home and we take care of it like it's a pet. Uh, it gets so much love and attention. I don't think I get this much love and attention. So we, we add fresh curry sprigs to our pongal and we add pepper. We temper that. We temper the pepper and the jeera, which is cumin, and the, and the curry batta in, in some ghee. And we add that to sort of the, the finished rice and dal, kichidi, bungal. And that is the dish. You have it first thing in the morning after, you know, after. so you have to get up and you always have to wash your hair um, on, on an important day. So on a, an important religious day or festive day, you must wash your hair first thing in the morning. You have to wake up a little bit earlier than usual. You have to say your prayers and then you eat bungal. And it's really, really special to me because there's always like this, this tradition associated with what happens on the days of festivals and, you know, sort of being, being ready to eat the meal and to greet the meal. So this year was quite different for me because I was alone in my flat in London. I was living alone at the time as well. So it was just making pongal for me. And Pongal is something I associate with having the entire family eat it and everybody commenting on it and everyone saying, hmm, pepper's a little bit too much this time or, oh my God, I got half a chili in mine and it's too spicy. You know, things like that. Just like little comments that come with it or somebody saying, no, 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 I, I prefer Amma's Pongal or no, I prefer Chitti's Pongal. But, you know, just that communal experience of eating together is so special to me and not being able to experience that this year has been difficult but at the same time I, I am very grateful that I was able to have it alone because I was able to experiment. I discovered that my instant pot cannot cope. <laughs> I discovered that I don't need to make that much bongal for just one small girl and I was able to do all these rituals in private and that also felt really special especially because I was having these offerings for a harvest festival of a country thousands of kilometers away from me for a culinary background that obviously has come to the UK and is here but you know Pongal does not mark the start of harvest season here so it feels 
suspended in time. It feels like you're walking the tightrope between two very different situations. Having Pongal in February or March, when it is so cold and dark in the UK, there's no sun, there aren't that many fresh vegetables and fruits growing, it feels very strange to be marking such an important day in the year. But at the same time, it also feels good to be able to connect to your heritage that way and almost to be able to time travel with food or even travel distances with food. And realistically, that's what we're all doing this year since we can't actually travel distances. So it was a taste of home and it was really special. So thank you very much for having me on here. I think it was lots of fun to be able to talk about this. And I'm really excited to think and talk about food. I think I've been reading a lot more um, of food writing, whether that's, you know, prose or poetry or even reviews or menus. And I've been thinking about food a lot this year. I've spent a lot of time this year cooking. And that, for me, has been the great discovery of the lockdown. It's just how much I love cooking and how much time I can spend in the kitchen. Thank you so much to my mum and dad, Jane and Steve, to Emma and Ingrid, to Addy and to Pratusha for being a part of this episode. It was an honour to include your stories and I've really enjoyed thinking about all of this communication that's going on through kitchens and through plates during this really weird and difficult festive time this year. And thanks to you for listening Wishing you a peaceful festive break, whether you're celebrating Christmas or not. And thank you for all your support for Lekka during 2020. Uh, it's really meant the world to me to make this podcast and kind of have this community during this horrible year. And I'm really looking forward to eventually getting back in people's kitchens with a microphone, hopefully at some point in 2021. But I've had so many amazing conversations with people as a result of making this this year. And I'm really grateful for all of that. So thank you. Don't forget to follow the Lekka accounts on Twitter and Instagram at Lekka Podcast. And thanks to Blue Dot Sessions as ever for the music. And I will see you next year. Bye. <laughs>